Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. This is the Abby Normal Podcast, here to tell you that you're weird and that's normal. Every time you see a miscarriage of justice and theological malpractice in Christian history, there is usually some movement which comes along among those who were hurt by it, who have a role to play in telling the next chapter and correcting the course of the church. And I think we have a lot of people who have been really badly hurt by the white evangelical version of Christianity. And I get why a lot of them want to leave, but my hope is that they won't all leave because I think some of them have a really important story to tell that's going to help us figure out what happens next with Christianity in America. Having lived so much of our life outside of an institution and now coming into it in our 40s and being like, okay, we're here, fuckers, here we go. Like, I think that's how change is going to happen. Kim and Dan in part one of their story. They'd been kicked out of the church community that they were embedded in. They felt so strongly about the church's stance on homosexuality that they were just willing to go to hell instead of aligning themselves with it. But I, I still think there's a huge cost of leaving church, a community, you know, running the risk of rejection from your family, and then just not knowing, yeah, yeah where you're going to end up at. But they kept doing their own spiritual work, alone at home, on the road touring, during therapy, or over Saturday Bible breakfasts with their little family. They did not figure it all out. But they persevered through obstacles that their fundamentalist upbringing said could not be overcome. They found sustaining relationships outside of the church. They grew up. You have the coffee shop. Yeah. You wanted to go back. Well... We got there eventually. Yeah. 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 I know that you were like necessarily. I wasn't like next day. I think there was a period of years where we were both kind of like, we may have attended our last church service, you know. And then they went back to something new. You know, I've been a touring songwriter for a while. Dan was teaching it as an, at a not-for-profit. We had never really been inside the belly of like a really powerful system. And it's hard there was a lot of times where both of us were like, what are we doing? Like, we got to quit. You know, I could feel that pull of like Mm -hmm. not being in the church for 10 years, you know. They found themselves in the belly of the beast, a big religious institution, but they had chosen to be there. They knew what the risks were and were willing to take them for community. Doing your own spirituality for yourself, I'm not really sure how effective that is. Mm -hmm. And it also just doesn't line up with what I think religion is and what it can be, which is the body of people together working towards change, particularly around, you know, justice issues. So after a decade outside, they made moves to return and now want to help others who find themselves on a similar path. People that have had some former religious trauma, they grew up in fundamentalist evangelical spaces. They've left church for a while or 
maybe they're still in church and they're longing for, they feel like there's something different that maybe there's something bigger connecting with those people and helping them to heal and whether they you know join my flavor of christianity isn't really the point no they can see things differently and they can feel things differently we're really willing to sit with people with some of the hardest questions because yeah. i totally get it question for me, and probably for you, is how could they go back after how they were treated, after the toxicity of a vengeful God, after all the fear? How? This episode is that part of their journey. Why they went back, how they chose where to go, what happened when they got there, whether or not it's worked out the way that they wanted it to. And toward the end, why even Christianity? What, after everything, draws them toward it? So this part starts, perhaps contradictorily, with wanting to protect their child from fundamentalism. You know, when we returned to church 10 years later, we returned for many reasons. A, a couple of them, one, we were f very fearful our son would become vulnerable to fundamentalism. We were already getting pressure from family members about VBS, about Vacation Bible School. You know, we're in still Appalachians, we're in this sort of culture where it's very conservative, and we just, there was just no way he was, we were ever going to let him experience that. In some sense, we were like, <laughs> I guess it's ironic that we're like, if, if we're going to religion proof our kid, better take him to the Episcopalians. <laughs> but right, that's kind of right. how it shook out for yeah. us. Uh, although it wasn't just that, it was also like the more I was reading of church history and the more I was reading of just about the Bible and about theology, the more I was sort of convinced that whatever this was all about, it wasn't meant to be done alone. That it was, you know, there's the whole thing everybody says, and I get what they mean when they say like, Jesus didn't come to found a religion. And it's like, yeah, but he sure spent a lot of time at synagogue, you know, like, and he sure spent a lot of time gathering a specific group of like 12 people and teaching them and then telling them to gather more people. And this wasn't like a, a solo private project. It was about gathering people. So Dan's studies, too, had him wondering about community. If that's the model Jesus demonstrated, shouldn't they be doing this spirituality thing with others? Was that part of the point of the whole thing? So they started looking, and the criteria for finding a church they could possibly feel comfortable attending was clear. When we started searching for churches again, that was our number one. It had to be an affirming church, and we had the terminology then Sort of, barely. I think we were starting to use affirming. Yeah. But we knew we had to go to a gay-friendly church, period. Um, and the first church we returned to for a year was a really wonderful Presbyterian church. It was actually known for its gay activism in the city. The minister there had actually performed gay marriages before it was legal and had actually been kicked out of, you know, the Presbyterian church. So we were like, we're going there first. We more or less found the church <laughs> right. because we were like, well, I got to go to a church that's like affirming for gay people. And I know my fundamentalist church I grew up in used to pick at this one. So they must be doing something right. <laughs> right. You know, um, and we got there and honestly really loved it. It was still such a like meaningful to have that be your first church experience back after a really long time. The A female pastor, which I'd never experienced. She was a really great preacher 
our son's first Christian testimony that he got to encounter was a gay man giving his testimony. And he grew up Baptist and he and his partner were long-term members there. And it was just like all these really beautiful first experiences. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they had zero children mm-hmm. and like zero. Griffin was the only one. And the whole point of us returning to church was to help him connect and find some sort of religious spiritual identity. And mm-hmm. it was a little awkward for him. And so we started again after about a year, and that's sort of where we found the Episcopal Church, and mm-hmm. we came to the cathedral in Cincinnati. Hey, what's up, Presbyterians? You were a safe entry point that allowed them the comfort to make their next move. Finding somewhere with other kids. We attended the Episcopal Church for, I don't know, about a year or something, and we were very much like sit on the back pew and leave as soon as the service is over kind of folks. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even take the Eucharist for the first two years. I was yeah. so uncomfortable. They slowly warmed up in the Episcopal Church, and then Dan got sucked in. And at some point, like, I started volunteering to help with the youth program because I taught kids. That was kind of like my thing. People found out that about me, and Griffin was involved with the youth program. So I started, like, volunteering a little to help with a few things here and there with the youth. And then when the youth director of the cathedral left the job, some people asked me to apply for it because they're like, you work with kids. You seem to like, we thought that was hilarious. Right. And so when I went to like my interview, cause I had had several people say, you should go talk to the Dean of the cathedral. Cause I think they really, there were three, like a few people you. in the process and being interviewed. And so I went to my interview and I literally, or I said, I am really honored that people have put my name in for this job. Here is a list of reasons why you do not want to hire me. And you definitely want to hire one of the other people. And like, <laughs> I went through my list and I was like, I do not know. What I think we were about super honest. the following <laughs> theological ideas. I don't quite know what prayer is for at this yeah. point in my life. I don't, you know, I'm not going to probably give kids the most comforting answers. If like they're in like some theological crisis and they come to me, I'm very likely to say, well, I don't know, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. or there's three ways Christians have thought about that. And I'm not sure what, which one do you think is, is helpful? Like, I'm not going to be able to respond with the kind of like conviction and the answers. And like, I've got the thing because yeah. that's just not where I'm at. And I yeah. think that's kind of what people want. And a youth dude is, they want somebody who's going to like be able to give kids the answers. Um, and so I like, went through this whole thing. And like at the end of it, she was like, that's why I want you for the job. She's like, because you care enough. You actually care about these things. You know, you're not trying to project that you've got all the answers. And she said, so like, I actually want you because I think you care about this. And number two, I think kids can smell bullshit from a mile away. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that like you want to be honest, that's the conversations they need to be having, not somebody who's going to try to sell them something. Mm-hmm. And like, I had never had that kind of conversation in a church with a person in a position of authority in a church Yes. who like told me that's what we want more of. Right. And so that started to really turn my head in a way. So I I ended up taking the job and then the job sort of grew. They got him. Kim and Dan spent several years attending and working at the cathedral. And though that's not the end of the story, I do want to pause here. That kid, that tween, actually, that they took into a strange new religious environment is now an adult himself. So are they glad they did it? Did it work out the way that they wanted it to? Yes. I, I, well, I don't know. Do you have a feeling? Well, I mean, I don't want to speak for him, but I I certainly think that he has a very different understanding of Christianity and that we made that happen. So a different understanding yes. than you two right now or that you two grew up with? 
that we grew up with probably but especially from what we because i don't i don't know that we can i don't know that we can separate those things you know what i mean thoroughly he he always had a safe space religiously and spiritually and otherwise Mm -hmm. so i think you know griffin's initial journey into religious life via the episcopal church at first sort of there was a social quality to it he came in there was a youth group that he was involved with he was baptized into the church at 13 it was confusing to him but also a little interesting he was interested he was both baptized and confirmed at the same time it was fascinating our son is as you would expect we've always taught him to like think thoroughly through everything and we would always give him a full explanation and really talk through things. And so I, I still remember the day that he was set to be baptized, which is at this vigil, which is this huge event in the Episcopal Church. And all of our family was coming. And this and was a vigil at a cathedral. It was a big, big event at the cathedral. And about an hour more. before we were supposed to like drive down there, Griffin sits down in the chair in the living room and he's just like, I don't think I want to get baptized. <laughs> and, and I remember being so upset with him. Because we had all done all this planning. And, you know, right, he had right. prepared for this for weeks and weeks and weeks. And he was starting to be very freaked out about some of the language that he would, you know, we'd work through all this still. But, you know, he's 13. He's, I just remember him having this moment. And if you knew my son, you would really laugh because this is him. He, he hems and haws about a lot of stuff right before the event. He just had this moment where he's like, I just, I don't know. I don't know if I want to, I just don't know if I want to do this. And I remember being like, kid, you're going to fucking get baptized whether <laughs> right. you like it or not. And, there's, and then I was it's like, too what late. am I doing? <laughs> what? what am I doing? But it was, you know, a, he did he did get baptized yeah. and we worked through it with him, but it was just a moment of like... So I don't know, I think Griffin has had his own journey. And again, I don't want to speak for him. I think that he's got a lot of frustrations with the church. It doesn't skew towards young, the young. No. Which is quite frustrating for him. I think he would love more than anything to have a community of people that longed for real conversation around religion and God and meaning and purpose and Christianity and the whole thing that he could have on a regular basis that were people his age. Right. Not to say only people his age, but that yeah. there were a number of people his age. I think he really, really longs for that, but it's very difficult to find yeah. unless it's, and and a lot of the younger people, there's a lot of young people within evangelical Christianity. Right, I was going to say, he yeah. can find it in evangelicalism. <laughs> yeah. He like tells the story about when he was in college and he was like trying to find, you know, maybe what his religious community would be and he went and like visited some evangelical campus group and he kind of was drawn because it seemed to be like fun but then when he like heard them talking he was just like oh this is not anything i recognize as christianity i think he said like one of the first conversations he had with people is they're asking where he was from and he was like i'm from cincinnati and they were like oh where the creation museum is you probably go there all the time and he was like this is not exactly the way I did Christianity back in Cincinnati. And so I think like he's, yeah, he's been on his own journey and in terms of like, did it land him where I wanted him to be? Yeah. I think he actually like is not susceptible to somebody stepping into his life and saying, here's the real story about Christianity and him going, really? I didn't know. Thank you for telling me. Like, I think he is able to have a kind of 
critical engagement with people making claims. In fact, I mean, the way he tells the story, again, not yeah. to tell his story, but there's a way he tells the story, I think. Sorry, um, Griff, you're not here. So I know, I'm trying not to put next words time, in your mouth. Griff, next trying time, Trying to use your own words, buddy. Uh, he sort of says that, you know, by the time he started college, he was, you know, somewhat indifferent about many aspects of Christianity and that it was really hearing people in college make claims about what Christians believe or what they do or what what motivates them and that he found himself constantly going, well, that wasn't really my experience. Well, that's not actually a true statement. Well, that's not actually all Christians. And that it was sort of through that that he started to find that he actually cared about yeah. Christianity being understood in a more complicated and nuanced way than what mm-hmm. people were doing and that that was where he found for whatever value you know, Christianity means something to him. Mm-hmm. And and he doesn't run from that word now. I don't know that he is, you know, going to slap on a me and Jesus t-shirt or anything like that. But, but Darn, he is, because I was actually going to go get him has, a me and Jesus t-shirt. He has found for whatever sense, like he understands Christianity and he is comfortable mm-hmm. with the idea that that may not be how a lot of other people do, but that's okay. And that's all I ever hoped for. They accomplished what they set out to do when they returned to church. And maybe they didn't do it perfectly. I love that example of Kim yelling at him that he's going to be baptized, which is obviously not the religious upbringing that they were trying to provide. And Dan said something that really resonated with me. Many parents are passing on a faith tradition because it's the thing that sustained us in this life. And we offer it like a gift. It's hard, right? When you're... When you care passionately about your religious faith and you like think this matters a lot, you want to like pass it on to your kid. Not because you're just like, you'll do it because grandma did it and great grandpa. You're doing it because you're like, this has saved my life. This has literally saved my life. It's just the most valuable thing I know how to give you. And so like you want to, but at the same time, like their journey is not your journey. And so when you're trying to get them to like have the conversation and you're like, sharing this idea and you're like this idea like lit up the world for me it blew my mind and like you share it to them and you can see they give you the smile and the nod and the like thank you and you're like none of that landed with any force on you like you just sort of have to accept at some point like your journey is not my journey and this is not gonna mean the same thing and you got to make of it what you will and so i think that's where we're at Yeah. yeah Mm -hmm. the smile and the nod i may have seen that before Thus far, we've talked about the interpersonal reasons Dan and Kim returned to church. They were wondering if there might be a community for Christian wanderers and doubters like themselves. They liked Jesus and felt like that was what he was about. They wanted to protect their kid, to ensure he wasn't vulnerable to the tempting and toxic version of Christianity that had harmed them. But there's kind of a bigger reason, a reason that has grown over time. They wanted to make change from inside. I kicked this off with a question referring to the power of the church, for good and for evil. And then Dan went real dark. I'll work on a hopeful story, (laughs) but I'll start out by um, maybe painting a darker picture. So I'm no good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The darker picture is this. So like I, and again, like as a person who like completely disaffiliated from church for over a decade, I know that sense of like, I'm just kind of done with this. Like, I don't know that this is a productive use of my time to be connected to this thing. But what what I think is part of what drew me back is the idea that I don't understand the end goal of disaffiliation. 
as people who have a more critical take on the church and how it maybe could be in the world, as those people disaffiliate, we are handing the keys to this monstrously powerful thing called organized religion to the authoritarians and the fascists. And I don't understand how that ends well for any of us. I think maybe there is sometimes this romanticized Mm -hmm. idea that if me and everyone I know disaffiliates, then the thing will just stop. It'll just stop being, but that's not true. And there's no data that suggests it is. I mean, like the story in the last few decades, even in places like Russia and China has been back towards reaffiliation. And these are cultures that had a sort of cultural atheism that was more or less normative for generations. So I, I don't think there's a compelling argument that says that humans can stop being religious, at least not in very large numbers. Uh, and so knowing that our religious impulse is so strong that that religion isn't going away, I think we have sort of an obligation to try to work with it rather than escape it. Mm. And I kind of think the same thing, like when you look at the push for people to disaffiliate from politics or to disaffiliate from take your pick of institutions, like I get why we're all super jaded and honestly wounded by these things. And I'm also not saying every single person needs to invest in every single possible institutional reconstruction project out there because you only got so many years to work with. So you got to, you got to pick where you're going to dig. But I just think this notion of I will disaffiliate and that will somehow deliver me from the harm of these institutions has failed as people have disaffiliated. The harm being done by those institutions has grown. So I guess I start from there. Like, I can't see a happy plot if people don't go in it. Well, I'm talking too much. What do you think? No, I agree. And I think a small piece of that is, you know, Dan and I both worked for a fairly wealthy cathedral back in Cincinnati. And, you know, it's a system. There's a lot of really beautiful people there, but it's still a really difficult system at times. There was a lot of times where both of us were like, what are we doing? Like, we got to quit. You know, I could feel that pull of like mm-hmm. not being in the church for 10 years, you know. And we just we just kept doing it. We just were like, we can't write the same story that we wrote before. We have to experience this. And I think, you know, when we left, we sort of handed the keys over to some other people that were sort of doing similar work, doing really good work that had sort of come in through the doors of the church, partly because of the work we had been doing. And I could just see this, like, maybe growing. Like, people inside of an institution that maybe also don't let the institution drag them down, but just sort of keep their spirit and soul inside of it. I think about a lot of the work around what Brene Brown does. I mean, she's very much about going into huge power companies and trying to change the system the change the way people relate to each other so that they actually see each other they hear each other they actually have healthy relationships I'm not saying she's always successful with that but I think I think her intention and her teaching is good I I mean I agree I think trying to be inside of an institution actually create change is really difficult I think it's really necessary I think it's also learning how to not let the institution change you because I do think it's really easy to get either burnt out or changed by the institution and become in some ways cold Mm -hmm. to give back to the institution. Sometimes would they give to you or give it, you know, and keeping yourself. So I think that's why it's kind of interesting that Dan and I have sort of come to this a little bit later in our life, having lived so much of our life outside of an institution And now coming into it in our 40s and being like, okay, 
we're here, fuckers. Here we go. Like, <laughs> you know, I think that's how change is going to happen. Raise me from the dead, bring me back to life. Roll away the stone, let me see the light. Help me change They've hashed out for themselves that the church needs sensitive people to stick around or come on back. People who are not satisfied with the current state of the church, who recognize and won't tolerate the harm done, who after many years being away can stand their ground and say, we're here fuckers. Dan, the history guy, can pull out of the day-to-day and take a long view of the church and look for the hope. Right now, we as a culture, for very good reasons, because like, we are generously provisioned with a lot of really horrific scandals right now. Like, so take your pick of re- ways you want to be disappointed in the church. Like, and there'll be a new one next week if there's not one to your liking now. So there are so many like specific ways the church has spectacularly failed in its mission. And I think it particularly galls people because, you know, when the manager at McDonald's does something terrible, you're like, well, Okay, but it's also McDonald's and they have shitty burgers. So, like, what do I expect from hey the manager now. there, right? So, <laughs> you're gonna like get your, your back moral just for stand, that. <laughs> the moral expectation for the manager at McDonald's is not necessarily like sky high. Whereas when you look at the church where it is calling people to this high standard and right. saying that, 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 you know, our role in society is to be this, this gathering point for what community ought to look like, mm-hmm. and they're the ones that do something terrible to people it hurts a lot more. And I get that. I also think though, if you look at the history of the church, there's a lot of victories that people don't even perceive as victories right now because the victory was so thorough that people just think of it as the way it's always been. Yeah. So I think like when people stop and go, well, you know, the church gave us universities, the church gave us hospitals the church, you know, arguably gave us the concept of human rights that has become pivotal in, in Western culture, the, that we don't even think of these as things that came from the church. And this is like the medieval church I'm talking about. They like like to tie people up and set them on fire. So like <laughs> they were not moral paragons at, in all ways at all times, right? Like they did a lot of terrible things, but even they managed to like make these indelible marks in our culture for the better. But it's easy to miss that stuff. And I think like when you you shift to like more recent things, you know, on some level, people are aware of something like the civil rights movement was largely organized and run by religious people or the abolitionist movement for that matter, largely organized and run by religious people. And I think like if you're looking for something that's even like maybe a little less specific than that, like when I'm looking for a story that gives me hope, I tend to look to the story of the black church in America because the white church is really painful to look at. And that's the one I've spent my whole life in. And I'm not saying that like any church is perfect, but I think when you look at a version of American Christianity that was formed under the worst kind of oppression conceivable, and it not only like was born, but it grew and it became like this transformative thing in American culture. And it's astonishing. Hugely to me influential how, how, on music too. Right, how much emphasis on on 
our concept of ethics or the arts or music or, or, you know, what a church ought to look like, how a church community ought to operate, how much influence, you know, the African-American church tradition has had in America while everyone has just sort of, at least everyone in white churches like where I grew up intended to just like not even think of that as an authentic expression of Christianity. We were so fixated on our own white way of doing it as being the yardstick for Christian legitimacy that we missed this whole other story, which, which led to the civil rights movement, which led to, you know, these, these accomplishments that now we all kind of look back and we're like, those are the bits of Christianity we're kind of proud of in America, you know? And it's like, wasn't us, you know, it wasn't us that were as white folks that were sort of like the leaders informing that. And I think when you, when you even look at things with like black liberation theology and, and ways of sort of speaking about what Christianity fundamentally is that center on liberation of the oppressed and justice rather than securing your ticket for a blessed afterlife, you know, there's a lot there. So, so I find it hopeful. And I, and I also find it hopeful because I think when you look back through the history of Christianity, there's a recurring pattern that the people who are suffering the most, they tend to get Christianity the best. And the people who are most comfortable tend to be the ones completely missing the point. So that's where I kind of find the hopeful story. But I do think that every time you see a miscarriage of justice and theological malpractice in Christian history, there is usually some movement which comes along among those who were hurt by it, who have a role to play in in telling the next chapter and, and correcting the course of the church. And I think we have a lot of people who have been really badly hurt by the evangelical the white evangelical version of Christianity has hurt a lot of people. And I get why a lot of them want to leave. But my hope is that they won't all leave because I think some of them have a really important story to tell that's going to help us figure out what happens next with Christianity in America. Help me change Dan and Kim found their home in the Episcopal Church, somewhere they were wanted, just as they are. And then something unexpected happened that both of them initially found hilarious. Remember, Dan was working with youth. Being with young adults and but other things. But you already started having people ask you at that point. Shortly if after you that, wanted to, if, Had you ever thought about being a priest? Which, again, we thought was fucking hilarious. Yeah. I mean, we would, Dan would come home and I would be like, I would just be rolling. Like, well, we had like in the space the of like four ever. months, I had three people come to me mm-hmm. and like have a conversation with me about, have you thought about being a priest? Let's talk about being a priest. And like, I would come and I'd be like, another person thinks I should be a priest, Kim. <laughs> and then like, we would laugh about it and be like, that's the silliest thing. And, you know, and by the time that I had like the third person come, I like came home and I had a conversation with you that day and I was like, you don't like, think I should actually give thought to this, right? Because like people who pursue ordination are like people who feel a call. Right, right. right. And Kim was like, well, maybe a call is when like three people come to you in the space of four months and say, maybe you should think about being a priest. And I was like, "Uh, maybe. Dan, a priest? What? No, he's not holy enough. He doesn't know everything. He got kicked out of his church. He likes gay people. He maybe doesn't think Satan is a literal being. 
Oh, what's that? That might be okay in the Episcopal Church? Hmm, this is confusing. So, yeah, I sort of like tentatively started to explore it. And the way it works in the Episcopal Church, or at least in our diocese, is that you go to this like retreat that's called like the Explorer's Retreat, where they sort of like describe everything that's going to be involved. And at the end of that retreat, they sort of have this moment where they're like, you know, it's a long journey. There's a lot of stuff you got to go through, a lot of bad parts. So like be absolutely certain that whatever you feel called to do in the church, you got to do it as an ordained person. Because if you can do it as a lay person, like just do it that way because it's easier. And so I came away from that retreat and I came home and I, they give you a stack of papers and all these things to do. And I was like, I'm going to try to do it as a lay person. I'm not convinced that like I need to be ordained. I don't necessarily like. He was curious enough to attend the retreat and learn more. But coming away, he wasn't convinced that that was the right thing for him. But they were both getting more comfortable and confident in the church, started finding places where their specific experiences could help other people, both newcomers to the church and church leadership, specifically priests who had no understanding of the evangelical experience. Over those two years, you know, we were working with this sort of new worship service and we were having conversations with newcomers to the Episcopal church, lots of people who were newcomers. And we were just sort of like seeing that there were like spaces where people who had not traveled the journey that we had traveled, who did not know sort of like the ex-evangelical thing, but it was really hard, I think, for a lot of priests who were either cradle Episcopalians or they had come from some other kind of mainline background to really like get what those folks were going through and right. to really understand what we were trying to do. And we were like, boy, this would be a lot easier if we had like a priest who like got this down in their bones. And and this is like one of the ironies of the Episcopal church is that on some level, like the presence of priests with no religious trauma is like such an amazing thing for people like yeah, us. Right? right. You're like, right. I, I, I am so glad like this exists. There are people for mm -hmm. whom they're, primary understanding of the church throughout their lives has been that it is a place of acceptance and love and tolerance. And like, that is what they know deep down. Mm. Like, I'm so grateful for those people. I think those people are like a symbol of hope for those of us who are like, the church is doomed to forever be this like judgmental, traumatizing, horrific thing. How could it possibly be anything else? And it's right. like, let me introduce some Episcopal right, clergy yeah. to Have you. Have you met Maggie? Like, they <laughs> right. do not know that story. They they fundamentally do not recognize that story as being Christian, you know, what you're telling them about the church. Yeah. So, like, it's awesome, but it also means that the church often, like, doesn't know what to do with mm -hmm. people who are showing up with trauma because they're like, they just, it, they don't recognize it. This got Dan thinking he started to see this little spotlight, this little niche where his unique experiences, background, and outlook could be of service, a little area of light that only he could fill. And so we we had enough of this kind of like experience that we were like, maybe there is like a real point in me sort of pursuing mm -hmm. ordination. Like maybe there's actually a need for ordained people coming from this background mm -hmm. to create these kind of spaces. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to the Explorers Retreat and did it again. And this time I took home the big stack of papers and got a pen and started to like do it. And at every step of the ordination process, Kim and I just kept like, we would sit down and talk and be like, here's the step where they kick me out. Yeah. You know, <laughs> a lot of fear and about I, being kicked out. A lot of fear at every step of the way. I just kept assuming that, that and that was very trauma. much the mindset when I started into it. I'm like, I'm going to start into this because I think we've seen ways in which I could be helpful to the kind of thing we are creating in the church mm -hmm. if I were ordained. But 
I fully expect I will not reach the end of this, that something is going to kick me out. And I'm sure on some level is just my trauma of having been through mm-hmm. the experience of investing deeply in a community and having them say, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. But it was also like weirdly liberating because I know other people that have been through the ordination process, they get really anxious about saying the right thing to the right person so they don't do it. And I didn't feel any of that anxiety. Right. I felt like I was definitely going to get thrown out at some point probably, but I didn't feel any anxiety. I was like 100% transparent. Like every time I would get called into a room, I would just like, cause I was just like, I'm done being in spaces where like you have to tiptoe around and offer, you know, the mm-hmm. right answer and hope nobody like calls you on it or whatever. I just don't want to do that again. So like yeah. if, if honest answers get me thrown out of the process, I'd like to get thrown out as quickly as possible because I have no interest in following it. And so weirdly, I think that actually worked for us, you know, like the more we got in and the more I was able to just sort of like keep speaking very freely and, and I kept experiencing people going, yes, that is, that sounds good. We'd actually like you to move to the next thing. Yes. That sounds valuable to the church. Like it was, Mm. there was a kind of affirming thing that Mm -hmm. sort of happened as we moved forward. The process wasn't perfect. It's long and there's plenty of bureaucracy throughout. But as he said, he kept being affirmed along the way, just as he is, no hiding. And then the month before he got ordained, finally, anxiety kicked in. And that was when I started experiencing some anxiety. And I was like, something's going to happen well, at here. That like, point, I'm gonna, we had I'm gonna, made gonna, such an investment. Right. right. And I just right. started feeling like I'm going to say the wrong thing or I'm gonna, somebody's going to like look back at something I've said along the way. and Dan's going to dump all the wine all over the altar or table. I'm, yeah, I just kept <laughs> and they're just going like, to be like, out! somebody's going to throw a red card right before I get ordained and be like, nope, not him, you know? Yeah. Um, But I didn't really feel that until we got pretty close to it. And then I got all the way through it and my ordination was was a really positive and beautiful experience and no red cards were thrown. And I am now Deacon Dan. Believe it, Dan is ordained in the Episcopal Church. He just finished up and will be a transitional deacon in service to the community for about a year, then will be ordained as a priest. A priest, so official. Considering their whole journey to get to this moment, how does Kim feel about her new, slightly ironic role? So, does it feel ironic to you that you're basically a pastor's wife? Yeah, man, (laughs) fuck this shit. Like, really, fuck this Because you shit. ran from that your whole life, right? Like, people being like, you know, the highest thing you could possibly be is a pastor's wife. And you were like, death first, you know? Like, I'll see you in hell, buddy. And like, here we are. Right. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I personally like to call myself right now the assistant to the deacon. There you go, yeah. Which is not a better title. I don't know why really. I keep saying right. that. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I haven't really reconciled with any of this yet. I'm sort of in denial. <laughs> Um, it's interesting though, because boy, I, I think it would have been, I think it would have been a really different experience having done this in my twenties. I think it would have been difficult, but since I have had my own life and career and mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm, I'm sure people will still put on to me, oh, you're, you know, the priest's wife, but I am more than ready and willing to mm. have that conversation with them. Yeah. So, but I'm also, I just don't really care. Yeah. So I don't feel the need to correct people or they can think what they want. Kim also has her own role to play in the church in what they're trying to create. She brings her own gifts. I think it's also in our situation kind of helpful that like you have your role in the church, right? Like you have a a way in which 
Uh, I have never felt called to the priesthood. I'm just going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) But in terms of all the work you do with music and everything in the church, right? Like there, there is a kind of leadership that you are providing and a kind of communities that you are gathering and the things that you are doing. And so I I think like often that like whatever, like preacher's wife thing becomes this like weird also ran like the best you can hope for is to be a kind of supporting cast member in someone else's story. And I think because you actually have, your own, I guess if I use a churchy word here, ministry in the church, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. there's some clarity because I don't do what you do, right? Yeah. Nor can I, nor should I. You don't want me right. to do what she does. But, um, so I don't know. You can I think actually that's... play a pretty mean C chord. Pretty mean C chord. Been working on that since college. <laughs> Just about got it. They're in it together. Yes, Dan is the one who is ordained, but this is a path that they chose together. Here's how Kim sees her ministry ministry in quotes i mean how do you approach doing the music thing in church you know very cautiously i approach it quite (laughs) frankly Uh, so i've been very for many reasons resistant to being a worship leader mostly throughout my career because i never wanted to be seen as a christian artist Mm -hmm. or at least i never wanted to be pigeonholed or be touring only Christian markets or whatever. And my music was not necessarily Christian music in the way that CCM does Christian music. But all that to say, I've always been really cautious about it. Um, So, you know, I started doing music in the Episcopal Church pretty much a year after we started coming. And it was my first exposure to, like, liturgical music or music from the Episcopal hymnal. And I, you know, I really love a lot of the hymns that we do. So I don't know, it's, it's, it's opened up a whole different sort of world of experience within the church. So I, I started leading that community back in Cincinnati and doing a lot of music for that community in the church context. And I really enjoyed it. It was a challenge for me that was different from my, like my normal career. Then when we moved out here, I did some work down in Cupertino and then I've been doing some work at Sunday night service. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely still feel like I, I stick out a little bit in the Episcopal Church. Um, I really like hymns, and I like sort of doing hymns a little bit differently, maybe feeling them differently. I also like this world of music called Music Makes Community, which is sort of like paperless singing, and it's all about sort of community chants and community singing and like breaking groups up into parts and having them sort of playfully sing together. And, and that's just a different experience. And my hope is that I could continue doing that work. I think it's about finding communities that are interested in that kind of music. Mm-hmm. I think the Episcopal Church struggles with varying types of music in their worship spaces. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. We'll see yeah. if I'll if I have opportunity to continue mm-hmm. what I'm doing. I don't really know, but yes, yeah. she will. <laughs> <laughs> Head of the family. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, there's there's like a pattern that I've seen, which is that like yeah. everywhere we have gone in the church, she has ended up doing deeply important transformative stuff. Cause like I think what she does is more important than what I do in the church. Because like the church has got a lot of good priests the church does not have very many people who know how to like rethink what the musical culture of the church ought 
to consist of. Yeah. Um, the Episcopal church doesn't, I, I should say like that. That's a very rare skill set. And the, the Episcopal church, I don't think always recognizes how desperately it needs someone like Kim, yeah. but it does need her. Like if the Episcopal church exists a hundred years from now, the music will not look like a uh, 1950s straight from the hymnal on an organ. Like yeah. there's just no future down that road. I have gotten to see Kim in action at the Sunday night service in Berkeley. She does bring a totally different thing, different certainly than evangelical styling and different than the dry hymns and organ at other denominations. We have fun. We sing in rounds. Some is more contemplative. It all just feels different, like brand new and ancient at the same time. I think I, I enjoy engaging with communities and and helping them to like, learn to sing together and opening people up. And I mean, getting to see your kid, like, you know, get super excited about our closing song, you know, like especially intergenerational work where you find music that actually has younger generations that can be a little jaded around music or, you know, they have Mm -hmm. a certain music and then older generations and bringing them together. And there's actual, like, it's actually fun, like making music fun in that way too. Do you have a favorite hymn? I have a number of them. I really, um, I really love "Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent." That's one of my favorite ones. I also really love um, "Oh Love How Deep, How Broad, How High." Are you gonna sing it? Oh my goodness, no! No, not even just a little bit. Okay, let's see. Um, I'm worried I'm gonna get the lyrics. Can I find the lyrics real quick? Sure. Kind of know. It's it's public domain, which is wonderful. Thomas of Kempen, 1300s. Oh, wow. Oh, love, how deep, how broad, how high, how passing thought and fantasy, that God, the Son of God, should take. Our mortal form for mortal sake. Thank you. Is I on key? (laughs) According to me, you were. I find those hymns to be difficult to sing. I mean, I have trouble singing anyways, but like... (laughs) That's a hard hard. It's a hard one to sing. is ordained. Kim is potentially sharing a new vision for music at church and thus begins a new chapter of their story. The future is unknown, so the next leg of their journey is really up in the air. Here's how they were feeling at the moment we had this conversation. We've been moving around a lot and we're about to, we're, you know, almost two weeks away from another major move, so. Yeah. You're well, in a- we've been in a lot of transition, physical transition, but also like emotional, mental transition for the last. And I got ordained. It's a spiritual transition if you're into that sort of thing. Yeah. 
big changes like everywhere all around yeah yeah and even where we're going now we're sort of we've had lots of conversations about like how long will we be there and you know how many boxes do we actually unpack and i think that puts you in a different kind of mental space yeah yeah, yeah. we've been talking about that a lot just sort of the idea that it feels like for as long as we have well for the last few years i mean the whole world has sort of felt like everything's unstable for the last few years so you yeah. know nothing special there but we have felt particularly kind of like groundless because like we sold our house and boxed up a tiny portion of our stuff and brought it out here and i don't know it's felt a little bit like you know reliving college except doing it at middle age yeah you know? yeah which i think is is kind of exhilarating but also kind of it feels temporary. It feels like you're in a thing that you know is going to end and then something else would happen. But now it also feels like the next step of the journey also kind of like entering it feels like it's temporary. And so we're, I think, sort of mm. having the conversation, is that just how it is? Like from here moving forward, is it just like step from like, which, you know, probably on some like existential level, everything is temporary and that's, you know, a form of enlightenment to view your life. But I also kind of want to unpack my boxes, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and like actually have like an address that will stay stable for more than two years. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think we're kind of in that spot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think also connected with that, I think we've been going through like a really long like grieving process too. It feels almost like an endless grieving process which is interesting. Um, I mean, I think in some ways I'm actually really grateful for it because I think it's been teaching us a lot about place and home and what are the things that matter. And I think it's sort of driven us both into, at least for me, creatively, it's driven me into like really appreciating mm, very like really hyper aware of my dependency on my art because it feels like it's one of the only stable things I have, you know, other than my yeah. relationship with you but I feel like art has been like the thing that's grounded me and which has been also for me revealing of like my you know my connection to God or what is God because for me art is such a huge part of that conversation creativity is such a huge part of that conversation so so when you say like an extended grieving period what's that yeah. related to I think there's been a grieving on like every on every level um, it has certainly been partly with the journey with the church itself. I mean, I think coming back to the church after a really long time and then sort of Dan following this path and me following with him, but also sort of unpacking my own religious like upbringing and then working through things. I think now like it's having to revisit things you don't want to revisit. And yeah. so that unlocks a lot of grieving. I also think doing all of this through COVID was really difficult, is still really difficult. And then, you know, saying goodbye to our home that we had for so long that had all these memories in it with Griffin. And then just grieving, like not having like a, a solid place to really be at for a while, because that has to be sort of sacrificed for this other, these other experiences of life right. and that are, involve work and, calling and and for me creatively I think I can actually I actually feed off that stuff so in my 20s I would have been super appreciative appreciative of that in fact that was part of my journey I feel like we were bopping around a lot but then you get a little bit older and you start feeling like you want to settle down and yeah and I, then I think that coupled with both of us have aging parents and well and also in like recent years like 
our son graduated college. Our son graduated and so college, he's like and he's starting out, his own life. You know, yep. where his life is taking him, which is and we only have one, know, so right, <laughs> we yeah. only have one child. So. so there's a certain amount of grieving and sort of yeah, that right, big transition there too. And I'm driving fast down a back road, shaped like a poisonous snake. Well, I think like our experience of the church since we returned to it, you know, has had has been thick with this kind of irony that like what you are supposed to do in church is commit super deeply to a community and like open your life up and like intertwine it with theirs and mm-hmm. just like get deep, you know, in, in the most meaningful ways that people can. And so we've kind of done that. And then because of the path I'm on, it's like, all right, now stop and go do it over there. Right. And it's like, oh, I don't know if human relationships actually can turn on a dime like that. And yeah. so, you know, when you have like really invested deeply with a community and then you have to like leave it and then you have to find a way to connect deeply with the next community. And then you're like there for a period of time. And then you're like, okay, now you have to leave that. It's like at some point, you know, the, the compounded grieving of, yeah that that like breaks my heart actually like thinking about that process that would Mm -hmm. be really hard Mm -hmm. and i don't know that like it's inevitable that that's what church stuff is i mean you always hear the story like father o'malley been down at you know the church of our virgin for 50 years you know it's like our virgin virgin what (laughs) what kind of virgin are we talking about father o'malley more likely than not but you know um i don't know so you do hear about people who like stay in one spot and get to like you know invest a lifetime of shared experience but i think we're still in the earlier stage where you're kind of figuring out how it works and and also i just think like the the particular kind of thing that kim and i are interested in doing unfortunately they're not doing it everywhere in the church right now and so you kind of have to be open to Mm -hmm. going where the doors are open yeah so we jump off hope we don't miss Nobody's paying no mind. Go and jump off. They carry their past with them, but they also carry all the healing that they've done, the therapy, the toolkits for viewing the world as not simply two boxes, the Buddhist teachings Kim explored, the history and diverse viewpoints Dan has studied, the music Kim has created, and the affirmations of those in the Episcopal Church. And some of these, they want to pass on. Here's what they hope to do. We always sort of come back to this notion of wanting to help equip other people who are maybe coming from a similar space where they've been given an insufficient toolkit to sort of make Christian sense of the world, like helping to sort of give people more tools because, I don't know, I mean, we've talked about this, that that when we encounter people in the church now, you know, they may or may not still be in the church two years from now. And we know that. And like, that's not like the mission. The mission is that wherever they're at two years from now, they will not be an abject despair. That their experience in the church will have somehow equipped them to love God and their neighbor, regardless of where they're at in a couple of years. And I hope they're still in the church because I maybe naively (laughs) believe in saving the church. But having been a guy who had to leave the church and had to go through a pretty painful patch of road because I just didn't know how to process that. I just don't wish that on anyone. Mm -hmm. 
centered on community and it's centered around working or helping people that have had some former religious trauma. They grew up in fundamentalist evangelical spaces. They've left church for a while or maybe they're still in church and they're longing for, they feel like there's something different, that maybe there's something bigger. Connecting with those people, helping them to heal and whether they, you know, join my flavor of Christianity isn't really the point. Helping them to like know they can see things differently and they can feel things differently. And and also, I mean, I'm still personally in that process and I probably I think I probably will be for the rest of my life. And I think that's what's beautiful about it though, is that it's not like I'm here now and I can give someone all the answers. I think Dan and I both know that that it's a, still a huge struggle, but we're really willing to sit with people with some of the hardest questions because yeah. I totally get it. And I totally get it if people walk away from the church and never want to come back to. So I don't know, just trying to bridge that gap I think is really important. And I think for the church that we're in, the Episcopal Church, helping people that haven't had those experiences, like opening their eyes to the realities of it, because I think a lot of times there's a real naivety about what that looks like, feels like, the experience of that during your formative years. So I think that's part of, would you say, that's part of our collective like yeah. work that we want to do. But it's also a little bit bigger than that. And I think it's a little bit more layered for you. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, when you're talking about flavors of Christianity, I think I'm also interested in this idea of making a case for the church and for mm. a particular form of Christian tradition that is actually pretty grounded in, in history and in theology and all the sort of like building blocks of the tradition, but doing so in a way that maybe looks a little different from how you encounter it. So Kim and Dan returned to the church after a decade away. They took it at a pace that was good for them. And they also understand some people don't ever want to go back. That they get too. Church can be real hard. But outside of the whole church thing, what we haven't talked about is why Christianity? Damn, Abby. <laughs> Do you got any beer? Right? I think it's honest to say it it was a faith I was I was raised with. And even growing up in the independent Baptist tradition, I was still there was a lot about Christianity that still fascinated me. I was still taken with the story of Jesus still even when I was a kid I really loved. So I would say the biggest reason for me is is that I I'm still compelled by the person of Christ. Even more so, I think. I'm still compelled by the stories of Scripture. And I think it's it's been really interesting because I have such a different relationship to it now than I did 15 years ago. I don't feel, I don't want to use the word weighed down, I don't feel fear around Scripture or any sort of understanding of God. I feel like it's quite fluid mm -hmm. um, and that it it's very wrapped up in mystery which I really appreciate. 
But I do think that I really enjoy aspects of the Christian tradition. And now that I, I was confirmed an Episcopalian several years ago, there's something that I really appreciate about little things like the church calendar and the rhythm of the church calendar and the liturgical tradition and feeling connected to a body of people around the world globally, knowing I can hit a lot of different churches that are going to feel, that I'm going to know what it's going to feel like, even even if it's just like me and, you know, 10 people in yeah. their 80s. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. But I, I feel very connected to a very specific way of understanding God through the person of Christ, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, there's something about, I know Dan's going to, Dan is fresh out of seminary, y'all. So right. he's going to have <laughs> the most articulate <laughs> He's like rolling up his sleeves right now. But this is as from a lay perspective. I've been working through my Christianity through my music for a really long time. And there's just a lot of juicy material for me as an artist. So I think that tells me I'm still following the Christian path as I'm still working through. And I I don't know, I, I feel a lot freer now in my understanding of Christianity. It doesn't Again, it's not full of guilt or fear. It's not driven by guilt or fear. It's driven by choice. Okay, it's Dan's turn. And he just finished seminary, y'all, so he's got some things to say about why Christian. Before we jump into the deep end, I want to define two things for you. First is the term incarnation. This is the central doctrine of Christianity. It's the claim that God took on human flesh in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. I promise Dan will explain this further. Secondly, the term atonement is the idea that what Jesus did through his life, death, and resurrection from death somehow solved the fundamental human problem of our impaired and broken relationship with God and other humans. With that, you're ready. Here's Dan. What about you, hon? I think... Like, because I definitely resonate with what Kim is saying in terms of like one honest part of it is to say like I've lived the kind of life where the Christian way of speaking and understanding is like in my bones and like it's it's not going away. And had I been you know whatever raised Buddhist on the other side of the planet, would I feel the same way? Probably not. I'd probably have a different thing in my bones. But maybe, I don't know. I mean, I like to think that religious ideas actually have some integrity and they're not just habit. But but certainly there's an element of the narrative of my life has suggested Christianity. But I, I think there is a, a deeper thing, which is that Christianity actually does make profound sense to me. You know, I, I think like something like the incarnation, right? I get how people often perceive God or whatever we mean by God as being this like transcendent otherworldly reality. And then there's like the world where like all of us botched and bungled people, you know, down here, like in the stuff of the world, we, we, we try to get in touch with that thing that's out there in space somewhere. And I love the way that Christianity says that God is incarnate in the world. That like when we look at something like you know, the life of Jesus, we're not looking at something that gives us a little illustration of some of God's better attributes. We're saying that is God, right? That this, this, this thing where, where this, this person walks through the world consistently identifying with the poor and the oppressed with, you know, he he hugs the lepers and he like treats women as his equals and he suffers horrific abuse in the end because of it. 
that that is God. That's not God-like. That's not a picture of God. That's what God fundamentally is. And that speaks deeply to me because like, I don't have strong convictions about heaven or some other world out there to be accessed. You know, this world is the one that I'm pretty confident exists, you know, after I watch a Matrix movie, maybe I question. But <laughs> um, but this is the one. And, and so it makes a lot of sense to me to find a way of talking about what God is as as a presence that is incarnate found through the stuff of this world. And it doesn't stop with Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus points us to the sacraments and the sacraments point us to daily life. It's this way of learning to recognize God in the stuff of this world and what we do with this stuff and with the stuff of our lives. That is God. It's not some sort of like practice for when we get to encounter God. It is God. So that idea of the incarnation profoundly makes sense to me. The idea of the atonement, the idea that the thing that connects us with God is, you know, because I think like our human instinct is to say that the way we overcome evil in the world is we just get strong enough to kill it. We just find a way to like get more power over it so that we can beat it at its own game and crush it and then the good guys win. And the fact that the atonement is, is God incarnate refusing that approach and instead like letting down all of his followers by by saying, you know what, I'll actually identify even more thoroughly with the despised people of the world, and I will suffer what they suffer. That makes a lot of sense. Um, if there is a way to fix the world, it's got to be in that direction. So, you know... Um, And yes, there's all kinds of like horribly unhelpful things we can do with the crucifixion and that have been done with it. But the notion of God dying with spit on his face, forgiving the people who did it to him, that means something to me. Um, and, and even that whole idea of like loving your enemies, because like I think, you know, what basic human kindness can come up with return good for good remember the people who did you a solid and, and like get them back somewhere if you can like pay it forward whatever like I think basic human kindness can come, come up with that but I think like God comes up with love your enemy and that's like my litmus test these days for like what I consider to be legitimately Christian if I look at somebody and I am convinced that they are motivated by love for their enemy then even if I disagree with who they've identified as the enemy or how they think a person loves them or whatever, I can still recognize that as being on some level fundamentally Christian because it's flowing from this place of desiring the well-being of your enemy. But if I'm not convinced of that, and frequently I am not, you know, I think I see people with crosses around their necks who clearly hate their enemies and who want nothing but their destruction. I can't recognize that as Christian because that's repudiating what I understand the atonement to have been about, what Jesus was about. As Dan and Cam answer this question, why Christianity? It's important to remember that this has been an evolution. They would have answered it differently back in their 20s. They might have told me to fuck off in their 30s. And now they have some kind of answer right on the tip of their tongue. Not because they've somehow buckled down, dug in their heels, and believed, but because they wrestled with the question. They held the answers loosely in their hand, let some fall away, and put the others in their pocket. 
Sometimes this process is called deconstruction and then reconstruction. Dan added this about the core practice of their church service that reflects the shift in his view of God and what matters most. Yeah, so incarnation makes sense to me. Atonement makes sense to me. And the fact that like what Christians fundamentally do you know, well, I guess I should be more clear here about which Christians, right? Because like the church I grew up in, like the the the, the big payoff, you know, the money shot of the church service where you want to like close it out is like <laughs> the altar call. It's like getting people to come forward and accept Jesus as their personal savior so they no longer have to go to hell. That was understood as like the high point of the service. Everything gets you there. That is not a, what most Christians have done throughout most Christian history, and it's not what liturgical Christians do today. Our high point is the Eucharist. It is saying thank you to God. It is saying, it is it is all giving thanks. Like Eucharist means thanksgiving. The highest thing we know how to do is be grateful for what we have been given, to be grateful for this world, for our community. You know, like that makes sense to me, that your core practice, the thing that God would call people to return to over and over is the practice of getting better at, being grateful and at, at sharing that gratitude with a community. So, so even like the, the, the core logic of the practice makes sense to me to center on, you know, giving thanks. Cause like the, the whole thing, like I think a lot of people understand the Christian faith to be about this sort of like transaction with God where you, you are, you are doing these things because if you do enough of them, you will get a really good thing in the end. So like, I'm going to love my enemies because in the end I get to go to heaven and it sure sounds better than suffering in eternal flames. And like, that is so fundamentally not how I understand it. If, if the thing that motivates you is gratitude, then it means that if I die and that's it, full stop, there is nothing lying on the other side of death except, you know, me not existing. I'm still grateful for, for what I have been given. I am still grateful for the ways I have encountered God here in this life. Like I'm not doing this in hopes of getting a cookie. I'm doing this because it's the only way of living in this world that makes sense to me is, is to try to cultivate deep gratitude for what I have been given. So on every level, sort of like the theology and the stuff, it makes sense to me in this like fundamental way, which is again, not to say that no other religious tradition can make sense or whatever. It's just like, I can't, really imagine myself articulating those things I care about most that powerfully with other language. It would feel like it would feel like a lesser way of communicating it to not use what the Christian tradition has given me. What kind of cookie are we talking about though, Dan? Good one. Apparently um, <laughs> people, boy, they, boy, they work hard for that cookie. <laughs> I would assume oatmeal raisin, but that's just because I, oh, I, I really oatmeal like oatmeal raisin. raisin. <laughs> So amazing how I survive this role. Feel the fever. Kim and Dan have come a long way. Walking away from a certain kind of Christian faith that I had and knowing that I, I just couldn't follow that path anymore and not knowing where it was going to lead. They struggled over those hills in the spiritual wilderness. And I walked into like very dark, scary terrain for a really long time and I thought that that was permanent in some ways it wasn't permanent there was healing out in the wild and then when they were ready they found something new together something that made sense someplace they were wanted and I totally get it if people walk away from the church and never want to come back to 
that wasn't my story. We did want to re-enter church, and, and it's not always an easy place to be, but we felt called to come back. And I see a lot of beauty in it, and I see a lot of good people in it. skeptics and saints in our own ways. Our lives are fluid and hopefully long. Our faith can and should change. And thank God for those who love us enough to stick around for the journey, wherever it might lead. is Build You Up by Kim Taylor. You also heard The Abyss, Raise Me From the Dead, Cover Me, and Make Me a Channel of Your Peace 